turn to Genesis chapter 5. I'm going to give you a real fancy word, real fancy word, real theologically, you know, in tune word, antediluvian. What's that? Yeah, Carl's got it. It's not that fancy. It just means pre-flood, the antediluvian period. That's what we've been studying over the last several weeks, and we're getting to the point where that's coming to a conclusion. So antediluvian, you hear it, you read people talk about it or, or write about it. All it means is pre-flood. And we're getting to the place where the flood's coming in our story. And so um, we're uh, uh, coming to that culmination of that first days. And that culminates basically with the life of a guy named Noah. We're getting to that point. And it sort of sums up, or excuse me, it sort of concludes what we've begun to know as we've read the Bible. And remember now... Uh, these records, we think, these genealogical records that were given to Moses, and he starts to compile and write out, are actually given and spoken to and read through by the people, the Israelites, who were coming out of Egypt and were in the wilderness. Now think about that. You know, one of the great things about the Bible, although there's amazing amounts of good things about the Bible, there's many good things about the Bible, but one of the great things about the Bible is, listen to this, it settles our past, it tells us who we are in our present, and it uh, uh, prophesies, and then the Bible further further, uh, amplifies our present. And so you can be settled that way. You don't have to be anxious You don't have to feel inadequate. What do you mean? I mean, listen, if you hold to an evolutionary theory that we came out of the primordial soup and we were just a by chance thing that happened, the notion becomes that you're an accident. But the Bible tells us you're the exact opposite of that. You were thought through, thought about, planned, designed, By a loving, good, not just being in the sky, but a loving, good father, a dad, who loves you and loves me. And he tells us that something really cataclysmic happened, really bad. I mean, you're going to see today, the worst of the worst, is that in perfect fellowship with God, the first humans rebelled against him and his word. And it brought death into the world in all ways, physically and spiritually. It brought death. Remember, I I love this part, this little verse about how God put cherubim around the tree in the garden. It's so dripping, full of, pregnant with, God's love and grace and mercy to his people. It's just booming there out off the pages because he didn't want Adam and Eve to come back in and chomp on that fruit from that tree that would keep them in the same state. They would, uh, sinful state forever and ever. No, he in his loving, merciful kindness put a cherubim around that so that he could get his savior to the world. That's what that's all about. It's just people say, oh, the God of the Bible and the Old Testament's mean and the New Testament. No, it's not true. 
He's so merciful. He loves you so much. He planned for you. He wants to uh, commune with you and fellowship with you. But there, that cataclysmic event happened. There's rebellion. And through one man, Adam, sin spread to all of us. So when we're born, we're sinful little things. <laughs> and that's the reality. And here, right here in this part of the Bible that we're about ready to study, you're going to see God's mercy popping through man's fall and Satan's plans to pounce on that fall. Did you catch that? And God, I always think of that silly little game. I know my mind is so weird. I get it. But you know that game you played when you were a kid. You put your hand on a bat or something, and you know that game that you played? It's like men fall and there's sin, and God covers it with grace. And then men do so, and God covers. And God covers. And it just keeps happening and happening and happening right here through the pages of the book of Genesis. So here we go. We need to tackle Genesis chapter 5 before we can move to Genesis chapter 6. And Genesis chapter 5 is now another, I think it's the third, genealogical record that we have. There's several here throughout the book of Genesis. Apparently, there were some records that were kept. And uh, these records, apparently, were supplied to Moses and from which he wrote, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of Genesis. And last time we were here, we covered the line of Cain. Do you remember that? We covered the family of Cain and the line of Cain. And uh, we got to that. And here's one of those evidences of this. Watch me. Boom. The line of Cain. That's Cain who murdered his brother and evil. Look, and right at the end of chapter 5, we see God just going, boop, grace. And here it comes, look, or excuse me, end of chapter 4. He goes, boop, grace, here it is. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. Seth was apparently the one who was going to take the place of Abel, if you're following along. If you're confused right now, just hang on. We're going to get you unconfused here in a minute. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Folks, <clears throat> As my son reminds me all the time, Dad, you always say this in your sermons. Well, I'm saying it again. I mean, the Bible doesn't hold anything back. I would have written it much different. Praise the Lord I wasn't in charge. Because by the third page of the Bible, you got a brother murdering a brother because of jealousy and anger. You, you, you get how awful sin is? how devastating it is. God created us to be in perfect fellowship with Him, and by the third page, sin has entered and murder happens in the family of God. And look at this. <clears throat> God puts His hand over top with more grace. God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And here comes the grace. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. See, what happened here was the family here, the dad and the mom, 
They called upon the name of the Lord, and that speaks of regular times of worship. Apparently that had faded away, and a respect and a reverence for the name and nature of God. And parents did it. And what's fascinating is, in the Bible, God always is searching to and fro for a man or a woman whose heart is inclined towards him. Not that you're perfect. David wasn't perfect. He was a man after God's own heart. Not that you're perfect, but you have a heart for him and you, you want to live by faith and, 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 and God looks and when he can't find a man or a woman, well, guess what happens? He has a baby. A baby comes up and here uh, out of uh, Seth's line, you know, uh, there's going to be uh, eventually Jesus Christ himself. God values life. God values families. God uh, uh, wants people who call upon the name of the Lord. And so the first thing I would ask is, are you just checking it off? Checking it off, doing things because, you know, you have to. That's not calling upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord is you in the mornings getting up and meeting with the Lord through His Word and singing to the Lord and singing with the Lord and you having these regular times of meeting with the Lord and then you come and you make sure your family gets to church. It doesn't have to be this church. Any great Bible-believing, worship, Spirit-filled church, get them there and be a part of the church and plug in and serve and love. That's what you're doing. You're calling upon the name of the Lord. You're not just, you know, boom, Get me to the Steeler game. I get to Permanis. And I like, nobody here likes football more than me, but so calling upon the name of the Lord. And look, people on the earth started to notice this. And I want you to know something before I go. I don't have the stats up in here, but if you study these long lives of these people, these long lives, 900 years, 800 years, and say they just had two or four kids and their kids had two or four kids, you're talking about millions of people by chapter 5 and 6. Millions of people on the earth. This Don't think of cavemen. That's something that the public school is going to try and teach you. That's not what this is all about. There's a sophisticated, thinking, city-making society of a lot of people on this earth. And here it says Seth and his family, beginning with Enosh, called upon the name of the Lord. Look, God chose a little family to make an impact in in the world. And boy, is that a sermon for us, right? What should I do? What should I be? Call upon the name of the Lord. Where should I go to school? What should I, who should I marry? Call upon the name of the Lord. It's like a one-string guitar. It's the same tune. So here, verse 1, chapter 5. Now this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. So we're starting with Adam. Man, dirt. That's what his name means. Dirt, man, that sort of thing. And the day that God created man, sort of an amplification, going back to when it happened, when he created man. Look what he did. And we went through this at length. He made him in the likeness of God. You're made in the image and likeness of God. You know you know what that means sort of in a nutshell? When you were made 
especially before the fall, you were made with a heart to respond to God's love. But now you're going to see after the fall, your heart is different. But that's what you were originally made to do. And that's the purpose of this first institution is that you and your wife, you and your husband would come together and to be as one spiritually, uh, uh, emotionally, physically, in all ways you become one. And he made him in the likeness of God. It's interesting. He created them male and female. He didn't create them male and male. He didn't create them female and female. He created, created, cremated. Uh, created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them mankind. Or in other versions, it says he just called them Adam. You see the oneness right here. Two becoming one. When you get married, you become one. That's what the Lord's doing. And, you know, if you're married here... You could raise your hand. It's a sanctifying process, isn't it, folks? Uh, okay, maybe it's just us. But anyway, <clears throat> it's a sanctifying process, but you become one, but also you're becoming one. And so it's beautiful here that he blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. He called them Adam. Some of you of one sex might not like that so much, but see, you're, you're, you're one. You're one. You're not separate roommates. You just sort of do your thing, I'll do my thing. Hey, maybe tonight at dinner we'll say hi and put on a smiley face and that. That's that's not marriage. That's roommates. We can be roommates with anybody. But here's the deal. You become one. And it's a mysterious thing, Paul says, because look, When you are committed to one and committed to the other and you're committed and you become one, the Bible goes on to tell us in progressive revelation about the doctrines of marriage or the theology of marriage that really what you're doing, you think it's you get a white picket fence and da-da-da-da, really what you're doing is that union is sharing to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're showing the world what it is to be loved by Jesus as the bride and to respond to him and to live. And it's beautiful. It's this gospel that's out there. I think if we just had that perspective about marriage and we remembered it every morning and every day, our marriages would sort of be helped along. It's not for your personal happiness, folks. Sorry. Marriage isn't for your personal happiness, although happiness comes a lot. It's not for your personal happiness. It's for your holiness. Amen is right. Who said that? All right, good. (laughs) Happiness comes. Happiness time. There are joyous times. but, But the Lord is doing something through your marriage as oneness. It's to show the world the goodness and greatness of Jesus Christ. Wow. You see, we get down in the muck and the mire of marriage, and everybody does it. We do it. You do it. We all do it. You know, nobody puts the toilet seat up. Nobody puts the 
toilet paper back. Nobody puts the lid back on the peanut butter jar. Somebody spills the milk. Somebody didn't pay the rent on time and all that. And we get down in there and we forget how high and holy two becoming one is. So let's not, because right here in the family of Adam that takes us to Jesus, isn't it interesting that he starts with a marriage? <laughs> wow. So he, that happens, and listen, we just go right through them, don't we? I mean, Adam, we're going to go through 10 people plus three. 10 people plus three, 13 total people in this chapter, 13 total people, and here they go. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness and named him Seth. Why is this chapter in the Bible? Everybody with me? Why is this chapter in the Bible? Because in chapter 4, we saw the line of Cain. Watch. And it's like God's going, boom, grace. So now I'll make another son, Seth, and through him, he's going to save the world, literally. (laughs) That's why this chapter is here. You you read it and you go, well, okay, I'm going to skip over that one. But he lived a hundred years, begot a son, Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. He had sons and daughters. Don't forget about that. Lots of kids, lots of people on the earth. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Adam was an old dude. Why old people? Do I think it's uh, literal? Yeah, I think it's literal. The number one reason I think it's literal is the fall just happened. We were made perfectly with great intelligence, Adam and Eve, great intelligence, great, you know, engineered bodies. And now the fall happens, and I think what's happening is, as we move along in the Bible, the genetic structure of people is decaying, and it takes a while. So at the beginning, you see that these people are old. And I don't think it's a stretch. I think that's true. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived and five years and he begot Enosh. And don't you just love it? He and his wife and their little kids, they just called upon the name of the Lord. That's what their life was all about. Make your life all about, no matter what you do. You a doctor, you... Whatever. You're a union worker. Anywhere in between. You serve coffee all day, which is an amazing ministry. Well, do it calling upon the name of the Lord. Let people see the light and life of Jesus in your life. So here he begot Enosh, and then Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Do I think? He lived 1,200, or excuse me, 912 years. Yeah, I think he lived 1,209 years. But I want you to see the next little verse. And, what I say? Uh, it's been a really busy week, guys. <laughs> but you just read the Bible and it'll take you right there. 912 years. But here's the little thing that I want you to see, and I want you to see it over and over. It says on purpose, and he died. Death. Even though this is the godly line of Seth, this should be a wrap, there still is death. 
Somebody get on that. There's still death. And even though they lived long, there's death. And then Enosh lived 90 years, 90 years. And uh, he begot uh, Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived this 815 years and had sons and daughters. See, they keep telling you they're populating the earth. Imagine populating the earth for 800 years, man. I've got four. That's enough for me. No, it wasn't actually. I wanted more. But whatever. That's a lot of kids. So Canaan lived 70 years, and he begot this guy named Mahalel, or Mahalalel. And after he begot this one, Canaan lived 840 years, had son and daughters. So he lived a total of 910 years, and he died. And then Mahalalel, I can't even say it, lived these 65 years, and he begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, he lived 830 years, had sons and daughters. So all the days of this guy were 895 years, and he died. It's on purpose. They're saying sons and daughters, so you'll know there was a population growth. And they want you to know, or the Holy Spirit wants you to know, that each one of these people died. Except the next guy. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, oh, wait a minute. Uh, Enoch walked with God. Did I skip somebody there? Yeah, I did. Jared, you know, you get to Jared. He begets Enoch. Jared lives 800. Uh, All the days of Jared were 900. Uh, Enoch, verse 21, lived 65 years, begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch, were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God. Now, Methuselah is the oldest person in the Bible, right? Because he lived 187 years and begot Lamech, and after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years, had sons and daughters, were 969 years. He's the oldest dude in the Bible. He's the oldest person we know of in the Bible. But let's get back to Enoch a little bit. See, that's supposed to jump out at you. Uh, this person lived, he lived to this age, he had many sons and daughters, and then he died. And you're sort of rolling along in your one-year Bible, you're, you know, you're half asleep, and you all of a sudden you say, wait a second. Wait a minute. Did I just read that right? Enoch lived, verse 21, 65 years, begot Methuselah, and after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Now remember, what is it to walk with God? What were we originally designed for? I love the the hymn. We were designed to walk with Him and to talk with Him and have Him tell us we're His own. And we felt secure and loved and we were responding to God's love. That's what men and women were designed to do. And somehow, some way, there was this walk that Enoch had. And you know, when you look through the Bible... Folks, in the New Testament, you're told, listen, you're told to walk as children of light. That's what you're told to do. You're told to walk in love. You're told to walk in the Spirit, and you're told to walk carefully. That's in the New Testament. So I want you to see, first of all, and I think the parable of the sower is about this, that your relationship with God is not a sprint It's more of a marathon. 
And the parable of the sower explains that. You know the person. You might have been that person. I know when I first became a Christian, I lived in that way. You heard something from the Lord. You were so jazzed, and I want you to be jazzed. And you just raced out. Pastor, I'll do this, 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 this. I'm ready, man. And you know, the cares of the world come in, and by next week, you're like, do I even want to go to church? Parable of the sower. But Enoch and us are called to do something different. We receive the Word of God. We ask God for the grace to obey the Word of God, and then we walk it out. We don't have to sprint it out. We walk it out, which walk means something like this. Consistently doing it over and over again. I remember this one time in ninth grade. I went out for track. Why in the world I went out for track? Makes no sense. I can't jump. I'm slow. And I can't throw like heavy things. I could throw a football, but I can't throw heavy things in any way. So I had no talents, no gifts in this at all. And I was a high jumper. Are you believe that? Why would I be a high jumper? I can't even touch the rim in basketball. I mean, I can't even hardly touch the net. And I'll never forget. Jan went to Roosevelt. I went to Wilson. Wilson and Roosevelt hated each other. We were like this in sports. We were great in football. They were great in basketball. And then we sort of tied in, 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 um, in track, but Wilson always won in track too. Sorry, but it, it's just true. But anyway, so we get, we're, I'm standing there doing my, uh, high jumping stuff, which is basically just milling around for three hours. <clears throat> and the coach comes to me and you don't say no to this guy. And he said, Hey, listen, our 440, our 440, back then you called it 440, our 440 guy, hurt himself. Would you mind running it for us? You can't say no to this guy. You just can't. So I'm like, okay. And I'm like, 440. What's a 440? Well, it's one time around the track. I'm like, shh, I could do that. Easy. <clears throat> Gun goes off. I'll never forget. Matt Norton, Roosevelt. I come out of those blocks so fast. I must be, seriously, from here to the window ahead of everybody, in the first 110 of the 440. I mean, I am killing them, and I'm thinking, well, this is pretty darn easy. I'm going to win the medal in my first race. And right about 200, it felt like somebody took a piano and stuck it on my back. And I finished dead last. I mean dead last, and they finished so far ahead of me, it wasn't even from here to this window. It was much farther. And that's what people are like who sprint in the Christian life a lot of the times versus walk. You see, we started this whole thing where God did. God started this whole thing, and before he established the Sabbath, or before he established anything like marriage and all that sort of thing, he established... Sabbaths and rests. And I think what God was doing in the Scriptures was telling you and I and we that as we walk this walk, not this sprint, 
as we walk these things out, listen, we are to always operate out of a position of rest. I think that's what Sabbaths are all about. Do you have to Sabbath on a Saturday? Nope. Paul says it, not me. If you get mad, see Paul. Do you have to Sabbath on a Sunday? Nope. But you can and you should. And oh, by the way, you should Sabbath every morning with the Lord and every evening with the Lord by spending time with Him and receiving His goodness and His life and being restful. What does, what does resting mean so that we could walk all these things out? Well, we talked about this several times now. Resting means believing what God said, trusting it, and then going like this. Great. You've got it covered. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. Yes, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to do the things that I need to do. I'm not just going to sit on the couch and eat bonbons. But I am going to trust you, and I'm going to leave it to you. You see that at the wedding at Cana with Jesus' mom. Basically, (laughs) Jesus' mom comes to him, and he's like, why are you telling me? And she walks away. It's funny. It's like funny. As she's walking away, she says to the servants, just do what he says. Because she knows he'll take care of it. She didn't worry about it anymore. What's the second thing I think you need to do to rest with Jesus? It's this. Learn to depend on the life of another. You don't do this in your own strength. You don't walk in your own strength. You walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Yielding and walking with Him. And I think that's what Enoch was doing. How did we get all the way around back to Enoch. Well, because he was walking with God, and that's something that's near and dear to the Lord. Are you catching it? It's near and dear to the Lord. He wants you to walk with Him. He wants you to come along. Be on the ride. Live your life walking with Him. And so Enoch walks with God. And so all the days of Enoch were 365, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. God took him. And you go, well, wait a second. God took him? Okay, I know what you're about ready to say. He was translated up to heaven, but it doesn't say that in there. Yeah, it doesn't, but it does say it somewhere else. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. It's funny, man. Hebrews. Who likes Hebrews? Raise your hand. Oh, just a few of us. That's good. No, I'm kidding. Listen, we love Hebrews. Do you know how much of the book of Genesis is in Hebrews? Check this out. By faith, circle that. You say, well, Enoch must have been an amazing guy who did an amazing amount of stuff for the Lord, and so the Lord liked him better than the other people. I don't think so. I think there was one key difference between Enoch and the rest of them. Enoch lived by faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he didn't see death. So that he didn't see death, it says it there, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. 
that he pleased God. But why is it that he pleased God? Because he was handsome or he gave a lot of money or he helped old ladies across the street or he went to the nursing homes or what? What was it about him? Or he was a pastor or he served on the worship team? What was it about him that pleased God? Here, look, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. What does God want from you? You ever asked yourself that question? What in the world does God want from me? You ever said that to the Lord? Here it comes. Faith. Just trust. Who here is old enough to remember the Nestea plunge? Yeah, I am too. Sorry. Man, we got a young crowd in here. Just that, listen. Just, remember when that person during that hot day would just drink that drink and fall back into the water? And I think of that when I think of faith. It's just trusting the Lord. And when you trust Him and you fall back and you, you know, who wants to fall back? But when you do, you're just so refreshed. And it's because you just plugged in to the power source. Him. Was it because He was great? Was it because it, no, it was by faith. And He took Him. And He took Him. And it's amazing. You know in uh, Jude 14, you know in Jude 14, I'm laughing because there's not 14 chapters. There's only verses in Jude. And if you go back to Jude, if I can get there, we'll read it together. It's right before the book of Revelation. Now, Enoch, verse 14, the seventh from Adam. Folks, in the line of Seth, Enoch is seventh. The number of perfection. And you go, yeah, uh, Enoch was perfect. No, God is perfect. That's the point. He plugged into the perfect God. And in the seventh from Adam, he prophesied about these men, also saying, behold, Lord, comes with ten thousands of his saints. Enoch was a prophet, you see. I wanted you to see that, and I wanted you to see that Enoch was taken up and didn't see death, and it pleased God. And see, I think this is a picture of something. I know I'm having you turn a lot, and you're probably all going, oh, he makes me turn. But, oh, well, uh, if you go over to 1 Thessalonians, it's before Hebrews and before Timothy. Go over to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. Guys, gals, I want you to really plug in here. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us, listen, that for the children of God, you're not appointed unto wrath. But wrath is coming. We live in the church age. And the Lord is coming back not as the Lamb of God, but as the Lion in judgment. And He's going to pour out His wrath, listen, on a Christ-rejecting world. And it's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation. At the end of that seven years, He's going to come back to the earth in judgment with His saints, that's you, 
and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Why do you think Jerusalem is always under attack? Because the enemy hates Jerusalem. Hates. So you have this seven-year period of tribulation. Jesus is coming in his second coming. There'll be a millennial kingdom of 1,000 years. But wait a minute, time out. Just focus for a minute. Let's go all the way back to the period that begins the period of tribulation. And I believe and we believe that prior to the tribulation, because the Bible says that the children of God are not appointed under wrath, at the beginning, before the uh, seven-year period of tribulation, there's going to be a rapture where he's going to come and gather up his church, and from heaven we're going to watch the events that unfold during the great tribulation. Now watch. For this we say to you, verse 15 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Asleep is a a title or a way of saying who have been dead. Verse 14, or excuse me, 16. ah, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I'm clapping. This is amazing. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain on earth shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Not on earth. On earth, second coming. That's after the tribulation. Before the tribulation is rapture. We meet in the clouds. Not on earth. I'm saying that on purpose. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And you know what? Guys, wake up right here. I know. I know. You're like Steelers, Ravens. Some people get fuzzy and sort of uncomfortable when we start talking about one of these sorts of things here. I want you to read the next verse with me. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Why do you think the doctrine is those doctrine of the end times are under attack? Because the enemy doesn't want you to be comforted. Jesus says, well, God says through the Holy Spirit, if you talk about this doctrine, you should feel comforted. Not me, Bible. So we talk about it. And when we go back to Genesis... Enoch, seventh, is a picture, in my opinion, and in many scholars' opinion, that are much smarter than me. In our opinion, this is a picture, a type of the rapture. Why? Because in one and a half chapters, there's coming impending doom and judgment. And God's pulling out the people who walk with God. Get it? Okay, so who's Noah? Noah is in the middle and safe and sound in the middle of a flood with his family. Who's that? I think it's the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. And we'll talk about that when we get there in more depth. But here you go, you got Enoch, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's what that's all about. And Methuselah lived 187 years. He got Lamech, Lamech, Methuselah. 
Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah. Here it comes. Watch this. When you read about Noah, you ever think about this? Look, look what Noah was sent for, folks. Ready? To comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And, of course, God multiplied or amplified that curse for the family of Cain. Remember? After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old and he begot these three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll talk about them in a few minutes. And it came to pass when man... Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. It's funny. When God began to multiply on the face of the earth. Some of you are going to be reading this and going, huh, I'm not sure I ever knew this was in the Bible, but listen. Here it comes. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, time out for a second. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, we're coming to the culmination of the antediluvial pre-flood phase. Before we go, go on, I want to recapture your interest as some of us are fading. Turn with me to Matthew 24. And remember this. This is two days or so before Jesus was crucified. He died. Uh, go over to Matthew 24. He's giving his famous Olivet Discourse about end time stuff. And I want to remind you of something. Lest you think... Would you just go on and get over with this so I can get into the stuff I like? Well, Jesus didn't treat it that way. Jesus said, I want you to be really wise concerning the things of Noah. I want you to be really wise, Jesus said, not me, right before he died. Don't you give the most critical information right before you die? And all of his information was critical, but this is critical. And it says this in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were. So look, you and I need to figure out what were the days of Noah like, because watch, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. You say, I'm just studying, I just want to study Genesis and go watch the ravens uh, get killed by the Steelers. There's nothing more important than this, folks, to be not caught off guard. Nothing. There's nothing. And here you see the first thing when you get to chapter 6. Now it came to pass. What's the first thing you should know about the time of Noah that says in the end before Jesus is, comes back will be exactly the same? Population growth. You understand, I'm not going to give you the statistics, you could just go out. You understand from this time to about the mid-1800s, I don't know, got to a billion people. And from like the mid-1800s or so, if it's 1870, you don't have to send me an email. From about the mid-1800s to the 1930s, then it went to 2 billion 
And do you know where we sit today? Over, oh, I just looked on the line. It said 8.2 or almost 8.2. We're at 8.2 billion. I got news for you. The rate at which population is moving is a, is a great explosion. You're in the explosion era of population. Did you all know that? Well, back then, men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, all of whom of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he, he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth, not the New York giants. They were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. They bore children to them, so uh, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, I got news for you. You see, there is something going on here, and we're going to talk a little bit, I know. We're going to talk a little bit about who these people were, okay? But I want you to see the bigger picture before we move on. I want to make the bigger point before we move on. Whoever these people were or are, whatever you believe about it, and there's about two or three major views about who these people are or what the Bible's talking about here, I want you to see the bigger picture. The bigger picture is the enemy of God is trying to attack the line of Seth. Why? Because the enemy of God knows who's coming. And who's coming is Jesus to save men and women, boys and girls, from eternal damnation by saving them or by making a sacrifice that allows them to be wiped clean of their sins. And the enemy hates God. And that's this thing happening again. Boom. Boom. And God is going to cover it. So you have this weird thing that's happening right here. There's this weird thing. Now, let me give you the three views about what's happening here if you want to write this down. People study this for hours. I have to say, I would sort of be in the camp before we start here of Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel. This is one I'm filing away as, let's find out later. Because I don't know. I think I might have a view about it, and it sounds wishy-washy. I, I sort of do have a view about it, but good people are on both sides or all sides of this issue about who these people are that they're talking about. For instance, it starts with this. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. Who are the sons of God? One view says this. The sons of God are simply coming from the godly line of Seth. Humans who come from the godly line of Seth, and because they lived in an era in which there was sin and rebellion in the world and it spread to each one, they took the daughters of men who were descendants of Cain. Are you checking that out? Are you listening to what I'm saying? Here's one view. 
Sons of God are Seth's line, men. Daughters of men, they're Cain's line, people from Cain. And they married and they were unequally yoked. And they gave offspring that was wicked and big. But it's sort of as a weird concept because why would human sexual relations produce giants? And yet, there have been giants on the earth. And uh, all you have to do is, I mean, anyway. So that's one view. Other view is this, that the sons of God are just the rulers and kings of the world. These rulers and kings of the world who just search, just look for people who look good and then took them. But again, that doesn't really explain why there were giants and all that sort of thing. Another view, and this is probably the the next popular view, is that the sons of God are fallen angels. Fallen angels who inhabit men. And you could go back do it with me real quick. Just go back to Second Peter. Go back to Second Peter. Peter was really impacted about this. He he re- he wrote about this. Go back to Second Peter, chapter two, verse four. Something happened, folks, around the time of Noah. Whatever you believe in, whatever view you have. Cool. Have that view. Be a Berean. Seek it out. But watch. I just want you to see something, and then we'll get to a point. We're going to come to your neighborhood here in a minute. For God did not spare, for if God did not spare the angels, verse 4 of 2 Peter 2, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Something happened to some fallen angels. By the way, you could go into Isaiah 14 where Satan is kicked out of heaven and then we believe a third of the angels fell with them. Now just just stick with me for a minute. I promise you I got a point. Some of you are like, oh, come on. But look, this is amazing. People study this stuff for years. Cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains. Look at this, verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world. But save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. By the way, Noah went around preaching righteousness. That means right standing with God. Bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, etc., etc. Something happened with fallen angels that was devastating, dark, and awful around the time of Noah. Wouldn't you agree? And if you go, look at this. Jude again. Go back to the book of Jude right before Revelation. If you go back to Jude, you see in verse 5, but I want to remind you, Jude 5, though once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land, folks, when is the book of Genesis being written and distributed? When they're coming out of the land. Afterward, destroyed those who didn't believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great dead. Something happened to fallen angels. It appears at the time of Noah that got them in deep, deep trouble. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that from just reading around all the different places of the Bible. So when you come back 
Some people believe that the sons of God are fallen angels that are inhabited by men. And if you look through the Bible, sometimes that happened. Even in the New Testament, there was demon possession. And it appears... that those who hold to this view believe that there's a demonic spiritual element to it. By the way, in Job 1 verse 6 and Job 2 verse 1, sons of God are clearly referred to as being angels. You can look it up. Sons of God are clearly referred to as being angels. And so if that's the case, read it again. I mean, these sons of God looked around and saw daughters of men who were daughters of men, people or ladies on earth. And they had relations with them. That's what the third view thinks. And it brought about this race called Nephilim. Why Nephilim? Uh, Because... The ones here who sons of God or sons of God referred to here, it actually means, in a sense, fallen ones. Hmm, interesting. So here's what I'm going to let you do. I'm going to let you study this and you come up with your own view based on the Bible. Good people on all sides of this debate. But here's what I want you to know. The enemy hates the people of God and wanted back then and once now to destroy us. If they can't destroy our salvation, they want to, the uh, enemy of our soul wants to destroy our witness. If you're not a Christian, the enemy wants to keep you from being a Christian. If you are a Christian, he wants, and all his minions want you to be ineffective for God and to wipe you out. That's what this is all about. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, going back to chapter 6, verse 5. So here's the second thing. Remember, as in the days of Noah, that's going to be what it's going to be like before I come back, Jesus said. Rapture, tribulation, second coming. It's going to be like that. Noah, the days of Noah. What's the first thing? Population explosion. What's the next thing? Right here in the Word, there's going to be this terrible, awful wickedness. It was so wicked and demonic back then that God here says He's not going to strive with man anymore and He's going to wipe it out. So there's this wickedness of man was great in the earth. Listen, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what sin did. Don't color the little picture. Oh, the cute little apple. So cute. Show the kids. It's devastating, man. You're given a new nature. You come to Christ. You're forgiven of your sins. It's devastating. Watch. That's the second thing. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. Why was He sorry? He was sorry that His creatures had gone and rebelled. It's not a defect in God's character. He's sorry that they rebelled. And it was so wicked, He was grieved in His heart. That's what sin does for the Lord. The Lord grieves over our sin. Do you even grieve over your own sin? Do I grieve over my own sin? Or do we just say, oh, you know, grace. I'll just say forgiveness. Ah, I'm back. Paul says that's sheer stupidity, Romans 6. God grieves over our sin. That's what we should be about. We're not just sinning because we, or we're not repenting or confessing because we got caught. 
We should re- uh, repent and confess because it grieves the heart of God. New covenant sinning is way worse than Old Testament sinning in this respect. It's not really, but here, here's why it is. Because in the Old Testament, you were striking against the old stone tablets. In the New Testament, covenant of God's blood and grace, you're striking at the heart of God. There's a higher standard under the new covenant, but praise the Lord, we have one who lived that standard. Amen? Amen. So here we go. I'm sorry that I've made them. And then you go here and you almost just want to fall out of your seat, don't you? All of the hands of the enemy, boom, on top. And here it comes, God. Boom. He looked around. And there was no. And we learned because we went to Hebrews, why was Noah so special? No reason other than he was willing to trust Nobody else was, apparently. He was willing to trust. And it says, God, or excuse me, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. First time in the Bible grace is used. Mark it down. You know Peter found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Remember when he betrayed Jesus and he's in the courtyard and there's Peter and he's bawling and he's mad and he's angry and he's upset and he's ashamed and afraid and all that sort of thing on the night before Jesus died. And Jesus comes across the courtyard and and Jesus looks at Peter. And I think you and I have a litmus test for our Christianity right there. You know why? Because I think a lot of people read that and go, shoo, I would have hated to have been Peter. Jesus, right after he betrayed, looking at me, I wanted to hide in shame. See, I think what we all ought to say is, I wish I was Peter. Because I think the look from Jesus was, I love you. You're cared for. I'm going to still use you. Peter found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But here's what I think is beautiful. Okay, I know. I know. I'm making you flip again. So bad. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Memorize this. Get this on your refrigerator. Never let this fall from your lips. This is why we need to operate out of a position of rest. Go here. Be this. Find this. Uh, since therefore it remains that some must enter into it, what is it? It's his rest. Hold on just one second. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying today, today after such a long time, and said, today if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. There remains therefore a rest for the people. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works 
as God did from His. Listen, how do you find grace in the eyes of the Lord? You give up trying to please God by your works. And the Bible tells us also this. Watch, watch. You give up trying to strive to be good. You just trust. And then the Bible says, watch, this is just beautiful. You can come to the throne room by the blood of Jesus. Watch. What for? We always forget to find grace and mercy. It's always available to you. Here's what I want you to think about when you read Genesis 6. Don't think Noah was like something special that only he could find grace. He just found it. Do you get it? Oh, maybe I'm more excited about that than you. And the reason I'm more excited about that than you is no was nothing bigger or better than you and I. He just found the grace. How? By faith, by cutting off works, by saying, okay, I just am going to trust you and you're going to do it. And you can find grace because you can go to the throne room to find grace and mercy. And then you go to the genealogy of Noah. He was a just man. What does just mean? In right standing with God. He was right standing with God, perfect in his generations. Was he perfect? No, he was mature. That's what perfect means. And Noah walked with God. There it is again. Consistent over time. One step in front of the other. Walk, walk, don't sprint. Don't run out there like I did in the 440 and tank out. Just keep walking with him every day, little bit by little bit. Why do you think he told him just grab a little manna? Just enough for the day. Don't grab it for the week. Just a day. He's given you the principle of rest. Come and get the what you need. And what you need is me, manna. The bread of life. You just get it for today. Give it to your family. And come out again the next day and get that. And don't hoard it. Because if you hoard it, it'll stink and rot. Come every day. Are you and are we coming every day? Are you being used by the Lord? Maybe what the Lord is saying is slow down and rest with me so I can send you out and do an amazing work in a generation that hates everything we're about. And you say, how do I do that? Get with the Lord. Be with Him. Receive the manna. Little by little, step by step, walk with Him. That's what Noah did. You, the Bible tells, if you surrendered your life to Christ, you're just too. You're righteous too, positionally. And you're still walking it out practically, and you're maturing. He's growing you from glory to glory. You're becoming conformed to the image of His Son. Just walk a little bit, a little bit at a time. And then, guess what's going to happen? God's going to call on you for something. And they're all like these little tests. I'm growing you, I'm growing you, I'm growing you, I'm growing you. I want you to build a boat. Now listen to what Noah would have said. A hundred percent. God, I have no idea what a boat is. What do you mean you, you know? God wouldn't say this. I would say it. And God would say, well, because it's going to rain. And Noah would go, uh, God? What's rain? It hasn't rained yet on the earth. Folks. Now, wait a minute. We think about the boat and go, yeah, you should have done that. The judgment's coming. But there's a little time element in here. 
And you go, wait a second. And God said to Noah, look down here in verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me. By the way, walking with God. He walks with you and he talks with you. Here it is. He's walking with God. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled and I'm going to destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and outside. And then with pitch, and this is how you'll make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. You know a cubit is about 18 inches. And uh, you're going to make uh, width 50 cubits, height 30 cubits. You're going to make a window for the ark. You'll finish it to a cubit from above and set the door You'll make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters to destroy from under heavenly flesh. All flesh which is in the breath of life, everything that is on the earth, will die. Now, go back. Verse 3. My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. What's that mean? (laughs) God was giving him a little hint here. I'm going to ask you now, as I'm growing you and maturing you, and I'm asking you to be the one who walks with me and talks with me, and you are doing that. You're plugging into faith. I'm going to ask you to build a boat. God, what's a boat? I'm going to ask you to build a boat because rain's coming. God, what's rain? And I'm going to ask you to do it (laughs) for 120 years. You're going to build this boat. You're going to be out in your front yard building this Football and a half box looking thing with three decks not used for navigation but used to float and survive with enough room for at least 50,000 animals. You say, what about the dinosaurs? I think they were on there. They were just babies. What? I think the dinosaurs were on there. I think dinosaurs were on the thing. They were just babies. But anyway, let's not get stuck on dinosaurs. He says it, and he goes, I want you to just go it by faith. You're going to do it. And, the, and Noah's like, boat, rain, build? I mean, you could possibly be like me and not know what a hammer is. Or he could. And here he is. Think about the whole generation. Every day, driving home from work. There's Noah again. I have no idea what this guy's building. He talks about an ark. I don't even know what an ark is. He talks about rain. We don't even know what rain is. What is this guy is out of his tree. And I bet his family was like, Dad, man, I'm at school and the people are talking. Honey, I'm down at the market and the women and the men are telling me that you... What, what, do you imagine the peer pressure he must have been under? There's a lot of people on the earth, folks. Don't think of cavemen. There's a lot of people on the earth. There's societies. And people are saying to Noah, you're out of your tree. See, because when we trust God and he asks us to do something, when we trust God and he asks us to do something, a lot of times people are going to say, you've blown a gasket here. What are you doing? And you're, you're saying, I would rather be obedient to the Lord and take the ridicule than be disobedient. That's faith. Now let me ask you something. Where do you see these sorts of things? Well, here's one major place. Now I'm coming to your neighborhood. Work. 
I hear it all the time. People come in. I can't stand my job. Really? How many other Christians are there? Oh, it's just me. You're like, you're missing the point. Just build the ark. What do you mean? What did Noah do? He preached righteousness. You show up to the Christmas party. They're telling dirty jokes. You don't partake. They want you to drink. You don't do it. They say, you're weird. You talk to them. You talk in terms of the Christian life. You say, man, the Lord's been so good to me. I'd love to bless you and pray for you. And they're like, pray for me? I'm at a Christmas party. Don't give me that stuff. You just keep building the ark. And then one day, you know, that the job that maybe you don't like the best, the person sends you an email. And they say stuff like this. Whew, the doctor just told me. I got cancer. Will you pray for me? They do it in the email because they don't want you to, anybody to see. Or my husband left me. And I don't know where to turn. And I'm a mess. Could you come talk to me? Or I hate this job. And I don't know what to do. And I want to talk about my boss. And you write back, let's pray for him. Or her, whatever, whoever the boss is. And now all of a sudden, here you are. You're Noah in a 120-year span just building the boat. That's what you're called to do. That's what I'm called to do. Advance God's purposes in a culture that hates everything you do. How do you do it? With love and steadfastness and consistency. And you every morning, every day, you receive the rest of God. And off you go to do something that's really hard and arduous. And you go, nobody understands because I hate my job. No, people understand. Noah understood. We understand but you're there for a bigger and greater purpose, to shout righteousness to the world. You're not there just to collect a paycheck. Good, collect the paycheck, be responsible. You're there to advance the kingdom of God. Maybe it's with a spouse who's not doing great. And the Lord's just saying, and now listen, I'm not talking about abuse. Abuse is something different. If you're being abused, you get safe. That's not what I'm talking about here, so don't say I am. I'm not. But if you're in there and you're in with a difficult spouse and the Lord has called you to hang in there, what are you doing? You're building the ark. All you're doing is being faithful. You're showing the gospel to someone, him or her, who doesn't know or isn't uh, living a Holy Spirit life. Bing, bing, bing. And other people are coming around. You might even be Christians and say, get away. Leave. And you're just boom, boom, steady and strong with the Lord, showing the love of Christ to people. Got it? It's amazing. That's what this story is all about. You're Noah too. I'm Noah too. We're Noah. And he says, I'll establish my covenant with you and you'll go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. Eight people are going to survive and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive. You are going to be male and female, verse 20, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth, two of every kind. Look at this. Anybody ever noticed this before? How did Adam gather, or excuse me, Noah gather the animals? God had them come to him. Wow. God is serious about this thing. And you shall take for yourself of all food that's eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and use for them. 
Now watch. This is as you go out and watch the Steelers and don't lose your Christianity over a game. (laughs) Here it comes. This is key. Noah did. Just circle that. Maybe just put it in your notebook. He did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. He might have had a little thing. Rain? Boat? Ark? But when push came to shove, listen, he goes, okay, I'll do it. And how many people in the Christian faith, here's what they say. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. But this thing over here, you can't touch, Lord. Most of the time in my pastoral experience, it centers around romance. Just being honest with you. Yep, I'll do devotions. Yep, I'll give some money. Yep, I'll go to church. Don't tell me who I should uh, have a romantic relationship with. Sorry. The Lord just says, here's what I want you to do. I've set it out in my word. We show up and go, yes, sir. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here and we lift this time up. And uh, Lord, thank you for this glorious word where we, by the power and person and work of the Holy Spirit, can rest. We can rely upon your life to live this life and to, to live out all the things that you're calling us to do out of a position of rest. And Lord, whether you've called us to start a church or a home fellowship in our homes, or whether you've called us to be greeters, or whether you've called us to work with the homeless, or whether you called us to minister at our cafe or our shop, or whether you've ministered, whatever it is you've called us to, Lord, help us to walk with you consistently over and over. And so we pray that in Jesus' name.